Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Good to be back. We've got a lot to talk about today, not in any particular order of significance. I suspect we'd all have Afghanistan top of our concerns this week. But I want to talk about markets. There's been lots of stuff happening, particularly in equity markets, in stock markets. I want to talk a little bit about the environment. That's really a follow up to the things that we've talked about before, in particular, the United Nations recent report, which still obviously carries lots of reverberations and implications for all of us. And we've had some interesting correspondence with a friend of this podcast that I think it's worth highlighting, if if only to have a short discussion about it. I think we should talk about Afghanistan a little bit and the possible implications of what's going on. I think we should do a COVID corner today if we have time. We haven't had time in the last few podcasts, but there is clearly quite a lot of interesting and disturbing developments going on there. And that's not unconnected with what's going on in markets as well, because I think the market discussion is at least a function of what's happening to COVID and in particular developments with the Delta variant. And finally, if we have the time, I'd like to mention Brexit, because again, it's an ongoing story, one that will be with us for years and years to come. But there has been some interesting data out with respect to trade, confirming some of the things, some of the trends that we've seen before. There's been some interesting commentary from at least one leading Brexiteer writing in the London Times I'd like to just draw our listeners' attention to. I think that the chicken shortage in the UK is also worth a comment because that that has uh, generated some interest, if not confusion. So to begin with markets, 
The, the Hong Kong equity market is down 20% since its February peak. That's the classic, if not official, definition of a bear market. The Chinese market itself, the mainland market, is also down a lot. And there are several reasons for this, we think. And I stress we think because anybody that read my piece on the Substack website a little while ago about whether or not we are witnessing a stock market bubble would know that what we often do in these circumstances is construct stories to try and explain what is happening in markets. And so we must always heavily caveat the stories that we tell because they might just be that story. They might be right. Frankly, they're probably wrong. But the things that are going on in China probably are driving the Hong Kong market down. We do know what the narrative is there. And that's something that the Xi Jinping regime is up to with respect to essentially introducing new regulations, a crackdown, if you like, on various sectors of of the Chinese economy, and in particular, the tech sector and the education sector. They're doing all sorts of things. There's been the latest is some extra data protection legislation that was just dropped in literally overnight with nobody quite knowing what it's going to involve when it's brought in, in in a short while, in the autumn, we believe. But that follows other things that it's done that affects particularly companies like Alibaba, which is China's equivalent of Amazon. There are lots of theories about why the Chinese are cracking down on these companies. It's classic Communist Party control. That's one part of it. Somewhat more lightheartedly, I think that they've looked at the, the Americas and British equivalent of chief executives of these tech companies in China and in the West. And they've seen that the uh, frivolous Westerners are launching themselves on rockets going up into space for a few minutes. And I think they've decided, amongst lots of other things, that they don't want their tech entrepreneurs behaving in this way as well. So from a point of view of control, from uh, the perspective of inequality, and just simply tall poppy syndrome, they're taking these people off at the knees and having a big impact on share prices. Uh, Whether or not this portends anything more sinister going forward, we simply don't know. In time-honoured fashion, my instincts are to say that this is an opportunity to acquire cheaper Hong Kong and Chinese assets, but what do I know? I do think that it's interesting from a valuation perspective. These stocks are a lot cheaper than they were, and it is an opportunity at least to avail of those cheaper prices. The the other thing that, that... has certainly impacted a lot of Chinese and Asian shares generally, if not the world, has been it's clear that Chinese growth, economic growth, has come off the top, that their big post-pandemic rebound has slowed somewhat. Um, That's also true in other countries as well. People are looking at things like the iron ore price and other commodity prices that certainly have come off the top, um, in the case of iron ore, by a lot, signalling a cyclical slowdown in the Chinese economy, actually. And that has impact on the FTSE, for example, because there's a big FTSE 100 company called BHP that's a a big source of its earnings is iron ore. So these Chinese things, as always, have ramifications far beyond Chinese market borders. So the reason why we think China is slowing down is that the initial pop after the pandemic was unsustainable, as it is in all economies. But it's also the Delta variant, which I think has gotten a lot of people's attention over the last while, because it is uh, clearly causing all sorts of problems. And we'll come on to that, I think, in in COVID corner. But the growth picture is is very mixed. And it can be very confusing. Retail sales in the UK, for example, were much weaker than expected this week. And yet that bellwether company, Marks and Spencer, 
operating in the retail space, issued its first upgrade of its forecasts this century, this week. Um, and there's lots of, uh, on the one hand, on the other, going on in economies. My sense is that it is a bit like that China story. Growth popped when things reopened and is now settling back to perhaps something like normal. But because of the Delta variant, we don't know what normal is. I believe that leading indicators like purchasing managers and uh, surveys and things like that in the Irish context are still showing robust economic growth and that in Ireland in particular, there isn't any sign of pullback of growth. Would that be a right impression, Jim? Yeah, the Irish story continues to be extremely strong, Chris. We're seeing a strong rebound in most, if not all, economic indicators. As you say, the purchasing managers indices across the board are decent. Retail sales are coming back strongly. Uh, The housing market is performing very strongly, driven by uh, strong demand and limited supply, but it still reflects an underlying buoyancy in the economy. So, and indeed, on the export side, you know, there is some slowdown from last year, but it's still a pretty decent performance. Uh, we saw Davy Stockbrokers in the last couple of weeks revising up its GDP growth forecast quite, quite dramatically. Uh, and they're now looking at a 10% growth rate in GDP this year. And of course, the caveat there is, as always, uh, GDP grossly exaggerates. Uh, what's happening here in the economy. But still, the underlying picture is strong. So certainly from an Irish economy perspective, uh, the economic backdrop is a pretty decent one. We had a conversation earlier this week, um, as we do on a regular basis, about what's happening in equity markets. And we were mulling over the notion that is this the beginning of a significant correction in equity markets. And we've we've had a few bad, well, relatively bad days this week. Um, a lot of the key markets are in the red so far this week. But today we see um, most markets are making gains again. Uh, the Portuguese market has just hit a 17-month high. So there's still, um, I, I am certainly very loath to say at this juncture that global equity markets have peaked and that we're in for a period of significant declines. Um, I actually don't believe that. Um, And if we did see significant declines in any event, I certainly personally would use it as a buying opportunity if I were an investor in equity markets. Um, I do think there is a global story going on that is of some concern. And it's basically the vaccine, the vaccine divide. You know, we're seeing those developing economies uh, that are really suffering with the Delta variant now where the vaccine rollout program Um, is pretty awful. Um, You'd be really worried about the economic and social prospects for those countries for the foreseeable future. And, you know, we see the Argentinian peso, for example, hit an all-time low today. So there's, there's a very, very divided picture out there. And this actually totally mirrors what the International Monetary Fund was saying a few weeks ago in its latest global economic outlook. Uh, Pretty upbeat about the world generally, but that level of upbeatedness is divided pretty much between the developing world, uh, sorry, the developed world, which is expected to continue to grow strongly, and the developing world where the vaccine divide um, is definitely going to undermine growth prospects. So it's it's not a uniform story, but from a, nec- a global equity market point of view, um, I don't think there's anything to be terribly concerned about personally out there at the moment. Famous last words. Indeed. And we're not in the business of giving investment recommendations, of course, but um, I I think that what you say 
makes an awful lot of sense. The emerging market world, we, in equity markets, we, we split markets between developed and emerging. And it's the developed ones that are doing very well, as you say. And emerging markets are not. Emerging markets are where there is some value, actually, in equity markets if, on the conventional way that we measure these things. And developed markets, particularly the states, there isn't. The people that worry about the, the bubble, is this the biggest bubble of all time? type questions are asked mostly about the United States, actually. And obviously what happens there affects everything. But emerging markets most definitely are not still at their highs in the way that the Portugal market is. They, they've actually been steadily falling, Hong Kong leading the way. That's not an emerging market in the classic sense, but the Chinese market still is in terms of the way that we classify these things. And lots of emerging markets are struggling uh, with this environment, with this growth slowdown. And as you rightly say, with the spread of Delta and, and their lack of vaccination. So the, it's, a, it's a very mixed picture. And my sense is that that's going to continue for a while. But I think that my, my instincts would be the same as yours, which is that this isn't the start of the big one, uh, the big sell off. That probably, given that both of us know nothing about these things, is the, is the, is the, is the death knell for equity markets. But uh, you wanted to say something there, Jim. Yeah, I just want to say something. The looking at what's happening in China and the attack on the tech sector, as as you as you've explained, um, I kind of feel at the end of the day that state capitalism actually is an environment that's relatively supportive of uh, companies in the longer term because um, state capitalism should prevent the sorts of bubbles we've seen emerge in free market capitalism over the last number of years. So perhaps this level of state control, um, as loath as I am to even admit this or think about it, uh, it may actually be good for the longer term stability and sustainability of those businesses and that market. Yeah, I was being semi-serious when I said that uh, Xi Jinping, the boss of China, uh, was looking at Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson sticking themselves on the tip of uh, peculiarly shaped rockets and sending themselves off into space for a while. And I think that that, in a way, was a metaphor for, for how he thinks, how the Chinese Communist Party thinks about people who get too big for their boots, or in particular, too rich. And that what he doesn't want to create is what we have done here in the West, which is, which is a class of oligarchs who are rich and powerful beyond belief. Arguably, these sorts of men, and I would throw in Mark Zuckerberg, boss of Facebook into this list, if not too much power, too much money, or perhaps the two go together. I do think that there is a, a power play going on here, which is that looking at how these companies have become more powerful than, in some cases, pol political parties in the West, the Chinese Communist Party is saying, no, we're not we're having none of that. If that means in the short term their share prices go down, then that's probably fine by Xi Jinping. But as you say about state capitalism, they do, in the end, want these companies to be successful. I think that they, it's a question of degree. They want these companies and lots of others to be successful as well. They don't want to have these giant monopoly tech companies that we have in the West. So it's a balancing act, a delicate balancing act. It could go wrong from a policy perspective. They don't want Chinese equity markets to crash, for example. I suspect they would think that would be a disaster. But, so, but there, there, there is also... Um... I get a sense out of China at the moment that they're not, they would not be terribly upset at the notion um, that because of their 
intervention interference in the tech market that they may actually force a lot of or entice a lot of skilled IT workers away from those companies that are most exposed to this sort of intervention towards the more state-controlled companies. So in other words, it is a way of attracting talented people into those sort of state-controlled companies like Alibaba. Yeah, they want people to be involved in industries that help Chinese global power. That means you don't want people inventing another WhatsApp or inventing other some other kind of social media platform for people to just sit in darkened rooms and, and talk to each other in a frivolous way on. They want roads built, ports built, mines dug. They want the military to be enhanced. They, they don't want to be taking inventions in the West and figuring out how to apply them as historically they have done. They want things invented in China now. So I, I think it, it's part of an industrial strategy, absolutely, what they, where they want resources to be devoted. Uh, in particular to something called uh, Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and that has uh, implications uh, or lessons from what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment, for example. So it's, it's does it fit the plan? That's the question you have to ask of what's going on in China. Does the way in which the economy is developing suit the Chinese Communist Party? And up to a point, the answer is yes. But if, if it's a creation of an oligarch class and too few companies with too much power, then the answer is very much no. So it, it's it's an interesting example or experiment in state control. And it remains to be seen whether it's successful. But I suspect we haven't heard the last of it. No, we certainly have not. Uh, but if, if you look at what's happening in other marketplaces at the moment, for example, on currency markets, dollar euro trading just over 116, uh, sterling euro trading just over 85 pence. Uh, basically currency markets are doing well sorry developed world currency markets are doing nothing at the moment um, well arguably that there's, there's the dollar strengthened quite a lot relatively speaking over the last few weeks well it, it was up at 120 three or four months ago but 120 to 116 or just over 116 isn't exactly over that period of time a, a, a dramatic move um, so, so, in the in the context of what we know about currencies, absolutely, there's been no volatility whatsoever. And if you were a currency trader trading currency volatility, you'd probably be quite depressed right now. But it's it, it's just worth a small footnote that the dollar and both dollar and sterling, relative to earlier on in the year, are a wee bit stronger. A wee bit stronger, absolutely. And then you look at your old friends, the bond markets. Um, still remaining incredibly well behaved. German ten-year bond yield almost minus 0.5% at the moment. The 10-year treasury in the States at 125, um, which is a hell of a lot lower than it was three or four months ago. So certainly bond markets continue. We discussed this last week, I think. Bond markets continue to buy into the central bank attitude that the inflationary pressures in the system are transitory and that we're not going to see a remarkable turnaround in either bond buying or interest rate policy for the foreseeable future. So you'd, you'd have to say, looking at bond markets, they remain incredibly well behaved in terms of you know, rates being very close to historical lows. And clearly, that's good news for equity markets. It's good news. Well, depends on how you define good news, but it's certainly very supportive of asset prices such as property, as we have discussed at great length. So it's, it's, it's a pretty 
you know calm environment out there at the moment so well, you know, it is it is it is august well it is it is august of course it is but uh if you think back to uh the great financial crash august was a pretty difficult month and i would say that if there is a problem building and that's a big if it, it stems from china and it stems from the emerging market space we're very focused of course as we have been on this podcast because markets are on the inflation threat and I don't, we won't talk about that today, but I think the, the bigger threat is is whether or not there is a building emerging market crisis, which we've had from, you know, one a decade for for quite some time now. Let's move the discussion on, Jim, to something completely different. And I just want to briefly mention a response from a good friend of this podcast, big supporter, always sends in some nice comments, sent us an email. I won't mention this guy's this guy by name, because one of the things that happens to people that express some mild scepticism or even just question some of the assumptions that uh, environmentalists make, they, they, metaphorically speaking at least, get their heads taken off. So people are very reluctant to put their heads above the parapet when it comes to questioning conventional wisdom on the environment. And and that in itself is a worry, because I think, as as with any science, we should always be allowed to ask questions. Scientific progress is always based on asking questions and letting the data answer them. This friend of the podcast, first of all, refers us to a piece published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal that does question the uh, scientific consensus. And this, this, I've no idea what kind of status this peer-reviewed journal has. I've looked it up and it seems to be a proper journal, peer-reviewed, as we say. And it's actually an uh, article written by an Irishman called Ronan Connolly, in which he cites uh, evidence, as he and others see it, that although the climate most definitely is changing and global warming is most definitely happening, the there is some data that suggests it could be just behaviour of the sun and that uh, something to do with the way the sun shines affects the temperature on this dear old planet of ours. I've no idea at all. I'm not a scientist as to whether this this evidence uh, amounts to anything or not. It looked pretty persuasive when I read this paper that this friend of the podcast referred us to. It looked credible. It looked certainly looked interesting enough that it should should be explored further. And when anybody's talking about the environment, ask this question, which has always niggled away at me: Is this um, yes, the climate is changing, but what is actually causing it? Is it us? Because one of the things that's always bothered me about this is the moralizing, is the way in which uh, some people, some environmental evangelical types say, yes, the climate is changing and it's all your fault. And that um, we are dreadful people for A, allowing it to happen and B, not doing enough to stop it happening further. And it reminds me about a bit like Project Fear and the Brexit debate is that where all those things may be true. We might be dreadful human beings for, for getting in our cars and flying in our aeroplanes and do, doing what we do. But moralizing rarely changes human behavior, in my experience. And if you remember during the, the Brexit debate, there, were, there was this project fear which uh, got people's backs up, actually, and said that if you if you don't vote in the way that we want you to vote, it's the, the economic climate is going to get, be disastrous. And people just basically stuck up two fingers to this and said, well, you know, you're just being experts and, and we don't care. We don't like the moralizing tone of what it is that you're saying. So whether you're right or whether you're wrong, I think you need better PR and you need to explain 
uh, these things a wee bit better and a wee bit more <clears throat> in an understanding way of, of how people respond to your messaging. Other thing that our friend mentions is the, the, is the outcome which was, you know, if the outcome is that you want people's behavior to change, think about how you're going about it. Um, he talks about there are different ways, many different possible ways to decarbonizing, um, which were not discussed in, in this and indeed other reports of, of its nature. This report that we've had most recently from the United Nations didn't consider this evidence at all of that it could be, maybe possibly the sun doing it. Um, and even if it was to look at this evidence and scientifically dismiss it, it would be more persuasive. Um, more generally, our friend taught, talks about something called conspicuous environmentalism. Um, this is something that's been explored by lots of analysts and commentators. In a way, he worries, as I do, that a lot of the environmental movement is, is just glorified virtue signaling and is just another way, yet another way, that we see our societies being consumed by ideological zealotry, where, you know, let's have a look at the evidence for this ideological zealotry um, in the round rather than uh, confirmation bias, uh, which I think there, there is potentially quite a lot of. So I'm not being an environmental skeptic here, and I'm not doubting what anybody's saying, but I'm, sa I'm asking questions about why there is certain things that aren't being considered and asking people to stop the moralizing. It may well be my fault but um, I don't think you're going to get anywhere by shouting at me and telling me that um, it, it, it's all my fault. I do think that I, I would agree with our friend who, who actually says, this is a quote here, it's time to call out the sheer scale of the bullshit in climate forecasting. There's been an awful lot of stuff forecast already that hasn't happened. And there's an awful lot of stuff going on at the moment. Every time there is a forest fire somewhere, it's, a, it's, a, it's all our fault. And we need to do something about it. And the most extreme elements of the environmental uh, campaigners were, are also degrowthers, which is that we need to stop economic growth. That's where I do part company with these people, because I guarantee you that one way to destroy people's lives, to cause things like wars, to uh, make all of the populist thing even worse would be if this planet was to stop growing economically. I do firmly believe that there is an environmentally sustainable way of achieving economic growth. Some economies are doing that already. And that to have us all going back to being hunter-gatherers, as some of these environmentalists quite explicitly seem to want us to do, um, is absolutely absurd. So if you want to achieve change, and I think whichever, wherever you are on this spectrum of environmental views, I think all of us would agree, as indeed does our commentator friend, that it makes sense to pollute less, to consume less plastic, to keep as much fossil fuel in, in the ground as possible. If you want to achieve these things, um, I think that some people need to think about how they actually go about it. I know that that's all going to probably get my head taken off by commenters, commentators, so I don't know whether I should invite you to add your sixpence worth, whether you want to stick your head above the parapet or not. We we have spoken. No, no, no is a perfectly acceptable answer. By no, the way, no, we, we have spoken on many occasions about the futility of economic and financial market forecasting. We, we we've seen a lot of these um, climate related forecasts over the last few years. Uh, some have borne some truth. A lot, um, absolutely not. Um, uh, to be honest, I don't feel qualified enough to say if these forecasts are correct or not. I mean, I look at the the most recent climate report from the UN 
Um, I look at what's happening in terms of extreme weather events. And I don't know, you know, what, what's causing this, but it certainly logically does strike me that, um, that the rapidly expanding global population um, is making a significant contribution to the degradation of the environment. And um, it certainly convinces me even more to change my own behavior somewhat in terms of, you know, trying to live in a more environmentally sustainable way. But um, and maybe that just makes me feel good. It has damn all impact on anything, but it just makes me feel good every time I cycle or walk somewhere rather than get, uh, get in the car and drive. So uh, I, I don't know, Chris, okay? I, I, I really don't know. But, but, but certainly if you talk to people in California at the moment, um, if you look at, as I, as I do on a daily basis, if you look at some of the footage we've seen from uh, some of the highways going through LA in recent days, I mean, it's, it's like the inferno. Um, if you look at what's happening in Greece, etc., it's 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 pretty dramatic stuff. So there definitely is something dramatic happening in in the climate, and you know we do need to address it. But um, I totally agree with you from the perspective of the degrowth agenda. Um, if you want to cause serious political dislocation, wars, etc., well, pursuing a degrowth agenda as someone is certainly the way to go about doing that. Um, with a growing global population, the reality is we do need to grow the size of the cake. And the challenge is not to stop growing the size of the cake. I think we've got to grow the size of the cake, but the challenge is to make sure we do it in as environmentally friendly and sustainable way as as possible. So I do think we need to look much more carefully in this country, particularly where there's a lot of lip service um, a lot less in terms of real action, but the circular economy, you know, how you could really get the circular economy operating in this country. So I, I, I think it's a big agenda. It's a very uncertain one. Uh, but a lot of what's happening out there globally at the moment on the climate front um, and the impact of that on the environment does scare me somewhat, I have to say. Yeah, I, I, the conclusion that I draw from all of this is that if you do pursue a degrowth agenda, or a zero economic growth agenda to achieve your environmental goals, um, a lot more people will die as a result of that agenda than would have died from whatever climate benefits you get from it. I can't prove that, but that's what, at the moment, my instincts propel me to conclude. That, of course, would be incredibly controversial, and so I look forward to the comments that we receive from that. Some brief words about COVID, Jim. Three US senators have breakthrough infections They have been doubly vaccinated and they announced uh, this week that they have all got COVID. And of course, there are hundreds of thousands of these breakthrough infections uh, around the world now. And that's one of the reasons why Delta has gotten markets worried, why Delta has got all of us worried. And there's uh, uh, scientific evidence from research published this week that says that um, in particular, the Pfizer vaccine's efficacy is waning in places like Israel. Um, and elsewhere. Um, AstraZeneca, ironically, perhaps not so much, come down a bit, but nowhere near as much as the Pfizer vaccine. And so these things, of course, are extremely worrying. It strikes me that for once, I can actually work out what the UK is up to now. 
which is that the combination of the vaccine that we've already delivered to people, the vaccines that we continue to deliver day by day, they've reduced, as they have, as you, I think you've done in Ireland, um, we're going down to 16-year-olds now. I think possibly you're, you're going down to 12-year-olds, is that right? That's going to help. So a combination of natural infection and vaccines is, is the policy uh, to achieve some kind of manageable state. The manageable state is not zero COVID, because I don't think anybody believes anymore. Perhaps they do, I don't know. But I certainly don't, don't think that it's achievable looking at what's happening, particularly in Australia, uh, but also New Zealand. I, I see that Sydney is shut down um, at least till the end of September now uh, because of the Delta variant there. The behavioural side of all of this is really interesting because it seems that those economies, those countries that had the most success with COVID suppression uh, didn't feel the need to get on with vaccination in the way that badly hit COVID countries like Britain and Ireland actually did. So it, it's it's worrying. Um, but I do think that there are some encouraging signs in that, I, you know, the the uh, other announcements this week is that we have some um, treatments coming through for or for different types of um, people who suffer from COVID, uh, antibody treatments. And the, the holy grail there is essentially a pill rather than a vaccine. We're not there yet, but it seems to be coming. Uh, whether or not the vaccines are going to be tweaked for, for Delta, I've seen it written without confirmation that they have a Delta tweaked vaccine ready to go, but the scientists aren't, are not sure that it's necessary at this stage. So the fact that it's not so serious that we all need to be revaccinated quickly, I, I take as, as an encouragement. And of course, there's that debate about whether or not we're all to receive third vaccines at a time when the rest of the world isn't. But it strikes me, Jim, that this one is going to run and run, and we're unfortunately going to be talking about it for some time to come. Yes, we are. We are indeed, Chris. Um, the <laughs> There's a lot of quite worrying stuff going on, but uh, there there is no choice other than to proceed um, as quickly as possible with the remainder of the vaccination program. But that there is an incredible amount of controversy in this country over um, vaccinating um children as young as 12 um it's certainly not going down well amongst a certain cohort you know i i i would have thought that the logic of vaccinating as many people as possible is to get the virus down to such a level of transmission that uh, the ability of variants to develop um is significantly lessened so i think there is no choice other than to proceed with the vaccination program and vaccinate as many people as quick as possible as quickly as possible and uh, clearly uh, that there has to be a dramatic shift in focus to the emerging world to make sure that the vaccination program is rolled out there as quickly as possible because that I guess really is the accolades heel in the whole debate at the moment from a global perspective um, it's interesting um, watching the Irish economy reopening here and um, the Irish government is shortly to review the existing range of restrictions that are still in place. And they are pretty minimal in a relative sense at the moment. Um, we have 40,000 people going to the All-Ireland Hurling Final on Sunday. Uh, I think the normal capacity would be in excess of 80,000. Uh, but still, 40,000 is a hell of a lot best, better than nobody a few weeks ago. But um, one of the things that... I, I'm noticing in the hospitality sector, 
And I, I definitely think this is something that a lot of people, including ourselves, would have pointed out was a likelihood over the last number of months. Uh, the hospitality sector is actually struggling to cope with the reopening. Uh, they're still operating with significant levels of restriction in terms of social distancing and so on, um, in terms of the various protocols that have to be put in place. But I think their biggest issue is very definitely on the staffing front. Um, a lot of restaurants are finding it incredibly difficult to actually hire staff at this stage. And one of the problems is that the, the larger restaurants with more financial resource are now taking good staff from smaller restaurants that can't compete. So um, there's, there's a problem out there in the hospitality sector. And I've spoken in the last couple of days to a number of people involved and they certainly tell me that the PUP um, is acting as a significant constraint because while people can avail of the PUP um, some not all are making a decision that it's just not worth it going back to work because as well as the payment you obviously have the free time um, from not working so that it's 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 a really really challenging environment out there in the hospitality sector at the moment, and um, I think it is going to take some time before we get back to anything like a semblance of normality. So I think that that's probably all we have got time for, Jim. Um, my my story about chicken shortages in the UK and any further discussions about Afghanistan, we'll have to wait for next time. So thanks very much, and speak to you soon. Thank you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.